Hi, this is Glenn Lowry of The Glenn Show at glennlowry.substack.com and at blockinghits.tv. Um, I just want to introduce briefly this week's uh, conversation at The Glenn Show, which is a little bit different than what we ordinarily do. Uh, Lawrence Mead is a professor of political science at New York University, and he has a book out called Burdens of Freedom, in which he argues that the cultural inheritance of Europe is fundamental to the success of the American experiment, and that that experiment is threatened to the extent that those coming to the United States from non-European points of origin do not embrace the same individualist cultural orientation, which he associates with our European heritage. He has organized a series of conversations with interested parties, such as myself, to debate the merits of his argument. This is my conversation with Lawrence Mead about his book and about that argument. I push back vigorously, and I hope that you will enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Welcome to the YouTube channel on Poverty and Culture. Our channel is dedicated to understanding how culture affects poverty and other social problems. Through discussions with our guests, we hope to understand that connection more deeply and thus find better answers. Our host is Larry Mead, a longtime scholar of poverty and welfare reform and the author of the recent Burdens of Freedom. Our initial ideas about culture come from this book, but the discussions may take us in new directions. Our discussant today is Glenn Lowry, who is a professor of economics at Brown University and a prominent commentator on social and racial issues. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, to my audience, uh, welcome. Thank you for attending. I uh, appreciate your interest in the subject. Um, what we're going to be talking about is cultural difference, where culture really means what we think life's about, what is important, what we think we should do and say and do and be and all that. That's what life's about. And the great fact about America, which we really haven't paid attention to, is that our country is really divided between two cultures. We have a dominant culture, which descends from Europe. Uh, America, most people in America descend from immigrants who came from Europe, and they brought with them a distinctive culture. It's very individualist in temperament where people more or less pursue their own goals, but at the same time, they have a moralistic idea about right and wrong. They have attitudes about those things which are typically internalized in early life and which guide them for the rest of their life. Uh, but meanwhile, we also have minorities in America who come from the non-Western world, and that leads to quite a different culture, although there's a lot of diversity uh, these groups all, in various ways, are less individualist. They tend to orient more on the demands of the outside world and adjusting to those rather than pursuing their own goals. Uh, and they also are less moralistic, more conformist in what they and how they approach uh, right and wrong. So the result is that we have a different way of life. And, and much of the difficulty we have uh, in uh, uh, assimilating minorities is, in fact, that they are coming from a different place, and we need to reckon with that. Uh, and also, this, uh, this difference affects how we deal also with foreign countries, many of which are non-Western and have a non-Western view of life. Uh, it's important to note that neither culture is superior in general. They have different strengths and weaknesses. 
and also neither is necessarily connected to race. They're not really inherently racial at all. It depends entirely on the socialization that people have and where they're coming from. So that's the basic idea, and we want to uh, discuss its implications for many aspects that we face uh, in our country today. Now, let me ask uh, Glenn to react to that basic idea. It's racist, Larry. Sorry. Okay, that's a joke. I don't know if there's room in the podcast. you gotta, you got to speak up a bit, Glenn. Okay, then let me get my microphone closer. I said it's yeah. a racist idea, Larry. That's what I said. I said it's racism, what you just said. Is racism, that's what people are going to say, isn't it? Uh, Some do say that, but uh, my sources, which come from research on world cultures, uh, explicitly deny that. Uh, I don't believe it. And furthermore, there's complexity, which we we need to get into, which is that um, there are some people in the country who come from the Western tradition, but who have actually disabandoned, they've abandoned an individual's way of life and they're no longer part of that culture. And conversely, there are people from minority groups, including blacks, who have actually adopted an individualist way of life. So they are quite consistent with the mainstream culture. Uh, And there's therefore a division within black America between those who are individualists and those who are not. And that leads to some of our complexities. What react to that? Now, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Let me just say that uh, at the yeah. outset. I'm, I'm generally sympathetic. I have begun reading uh, your large book. I haven't completed it yet, but I'm intrigued and impressed by it. Uh, but what I want to say is, in the case of African, you say minorities, and you say it, you know, so easily, when in fact we've got relatively recent immigrants from various parts of the world, Latin America, from Africa, from yeah. Asia, and we have this African-American population who are, as you, of course, know, not immigrants and whose yeah. uh, cultural patterns and practices have evolved within the context of the American uh, social yeah. and cultural and political uh, nexus uh, over uh, a period of a, a couple of centuries going back into the days of slavery. Yeah, Whatever the patterns of cultural practice, values, beliefs, expectations, yeah. uh, norms, characteristic of African-American society, they were made here in America, were they not? And uh, yeah. it seems odd to attribute it to some non-Western uh, source. I'm talking about African-Americans. Yeah. Correct. Uh, many people react like that. They say, actually, America, uh, African-Americans have been here longer than any other group except the initial English settlement, and therefore they're thoroughly American. Well, but their way of life is not typical of the mainstream culture that came, that came from Europe. I think the reason is that although they did come from Africa, they also lived under slavery and Jim Crow for a long time, and it's really only after those systems are overthrown uh, starting in the early 20th century, that we really start to see assimilation of large numbers of blacks to, to an individual's culture. Now, some do. Uh, there's an important element in black society that becomes individualized quite early in the 19th century. The influence of the church, uh, the influence of schools and colleges, and of course, blacks founded their own schools and colleges, a remarkable fact. Uh, and so that the leadership emerges from that, and they are individualists. They are, in fact, the people who challenge racism and Jim Crow 
uh, over this, uh, the uh, decades that followed, eventually led the civil rights movement. So there's the overall black story is one of assimilation to mainstream culture, but it's only gone part way. I, I estimate maybe a third of black Americans today can be characterized as individualists in their, in their view of life. The rest are still engaging in survival. They're still surviving in a way that people do in the non-Western world. I don't see any other way to explain that except to say that it reflects origins outside Europe. Because the European culture is unique to Europe and not found anywhere else. So we shouldn't be surprised that people who didn't come from Europe are different from mainstream America. That is a fact that we need to reckon with. Well, I, I guess what I want to question here. Let me ask you to speak up, Glenn. We need more. Yeah, I, I'm speaking directly into the microphone. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to raise a question uh, about the um, relative significance of Europe versus non European origins on the one hand, versus the influences of the exigencies of the circumstances that people operated under in the United States yeah. on the other. Um, I, I'm not a sociologist or a cultural anthropologist, so I don't have a, a rigorous and extensive framework of yeah. analysis to approach this question. I'm approaching it by the seat of the pants here, but let me just give a concrete example. So uh, the Moynihan report and all the controversy about that, the Negro family, the case for national action, out of yeah. wedlock birth rates, uh, multiple partner paternity, uh, uh, family disarray. So we look today at patterns in the African-American family. We see seven in 10 uh, babies born to a woman without a husband. We see the majority of black kids oh. living in single parent households and so forth. That's a one feature of African-American culture that I think has very far reaching implications. I imagine you would agree with that. But as well, you know, as you know, it's a very relatively recent phenomenon, this, yes. this uh, pattern of family dis disorganization. Yes, it's it a second half of the 20th century phenomenon, probably causally connected to the incentives associated with uh, the uh, expansion of the, the welfare state in the uh, post-World War II uh, political environment probably connected in some ways or another with cultural changes in the larger American matrix. I'm talking about feminism. I'm talking about changes in attitudes about the nuclear family amongst elites in the media and the academy and the arts and entertainment and so forth and so on. So when I look now today at black culture, African-American culture, and I see one feature of it being extensive dissolution of conventional two-parent family uh, wow. structures, attributing that to the non-European origins of African-Americans strikes me as odd, and it seems to be overlooking the made right here in America, and indeed made mostly by white elite uh, cadres here in America, uh, influences both of the expansion of the welfare state, yeah. uh, but also of the changing... Uh, uh, signals that one gets from the uh, 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 influential cultural elites of, about uh, what's to be valued and what ways of life are to be affirmed. That's well, that's hardly I, European versus uh, non-European. That 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 has it seems to me a lot more to do with the internal structure 
of American social and political economy. Well, I partly agree with that in the sense that the um, the tolerance of the family breakdown, which is across the entire society, is something that elites have have agreed to. But at the time, we know from Charles Murray's recent work that actually it's among the affluent Americans, the best educated, that the family has remained strongest. And in fact, the family is still a central feature of individuals' culture, even though it is now being honored in the breach by many people who are less educated. That's it's that element of, of white society that is really departing from individualism and going over to a life of survival. Now, the black situation and minorities in general, it's also Hispanics, you feel a weakening of the family. My tribute, the way I explain that is that uh, the culture of the non-West is very much dependent upon external social pressures to maintain, to maintain social order. So we don't see a breakdown of the family like this outside Western countries. We see it actually uh, only in those countries. And I think the reason is that in the West, the moral structure assumes that people have internalized norms of good behavior at a young age, and we then are freer in the rest of our lives. So we don't actually put a lot of pressure on people to observe the norms. We enforce the norms legally, uh, much much less centrally than, than occurs in, in other societies. So the way I explain the breakdown of the family among blacks is primarily that they're moving from the South, which remained highly authoritative about matters like this and, and imposed external authority on blacks. And then as, as blacks escape that system, move north, they're moving into a freer environment, but that freedom is a threat to them because now they don't have the external pressure to maintain order earlier. So as you say, the breakdown of the family is actually recent. It occurs uh, uh, after people leave the South and also much of it occurs after civil rights. I mean, the, the dominant academic view of uh, social problems among blacks and Hispanics is that they suffer from oppression from the white majority. That was certainly true historically, but that oppression did in fact maintain order for that group. And when they move move away from that and come north, then freedom actually has a dissolving influence and they then have a hard time maintaining the structure. This, even though their own values, the things that they desire to do, remain conservative and conventional. Blacks believe in the family, and they honor that idea, but somehow it doesn't happen. And that's because they're, they're in a world where they can do anything they want, and that's hard. Whereas the European population has internalized a set of restraints that allow them to deal better with freedom, so they don't use it in ways that are destructive. And that's harder for blacks because they're not coming from Europe. We don't have that tradition. Well, you've seen, have you not, uh, a significant, historically uh, speaking, increase in out-of-wedlock birth amongst, quote, European close Yes, Americans. it's happening, but, they're much, but the level is still much lower than we find among blacks. Well, it's at about 30% of the uh, births now, I think, or 25%, yeah. which is what uh, the level was amongst blacks in the mid-60s when Moynihan yes. was so alarmed about it. So... Anyway, uh, okay. Uh, so external authority is crucial to maintaining the structure of things outside the West. And it's the loss of that structure that I think is the main reason. That's the main factor that explains uh, only pregnancy and marriage. Outside, well, child- what, what about the pill? Uh, what about feminism? Uh, what about the decline in religiosity? 
That, that's also a factor. I would agree with that. Uh, the black church, although a, a major force for integration historically, has lost its authority over private life, and it now doesn't really resist the breakdown of the family. Now, you're right to say that that's also happening among white people. Uh, they also have weaker families than they used to have, but not nearly the same extent. And, and that's because, again, the, the structure, the moral structure of European society is much more internalized. And, and therefore, people have a greater sense of self-command. Whereas in the non-West, and not only among Blacks, the authority structure is external. People depend upon external structure to maintain order. Uh, for example, in Mexico, uh, the level of unmarried pregnancy is much lower than it is in America. It's when Hispanics move to America that their families start to fall apart because in America they're freer. And for them, as for blacks, freedom is a threat. Yeah. There's another point that I want to make, something that just rubs me the wrong way here, which is that um, having African-Americans viewed as a non-Western population seems to me to be arguable. It's true, of course, that we descend at least partly from uh, Africans who were brought to the United States as slaves, but we don't entirely descend from Africans. Uh, most African-Americans have European ancestors as well. Um, and the uh, content of African-American cultural and social life is an outgrowth of the population's uh, uh, experiences and development coming out of slavery. The, yeah. the, the cultural differences between uh, the uh, peoples from which the African slaves were taken vary widely from West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, and yeah. so on. They were not the same people by any means. And through the cauldron of slavery is forged a, uh, a, a social and cultural uh, uh, profile that is uniquely American, is it not? Yeah. And, and to have African-Americans laid alongside relatively more recent immigrants who come from their own uh, you know, backgrounds of uh, whatever was going on in South Asia or East Asia or Latin America, yeah. to, to have African-Americans sit alongside of them as, quote, non-European, close quote, strikes me as, as, as in need of defense. Uh, moreover, I would argue that looking ahead, looking ahead, the, the, the message that I want to try to give to African-Americans is to not see ourselves as a distinct and insular um, uh, identity apart from the, the larger American project and the larger American enterprise. I, I believe in not just integration, not just assimilation, but intermarriage, miscegenation, uh, erasing the line. I don't know why blackness needs to be seen in a permanent way as a category apart from yeah. Americanness. It seems to me the real solution to the to the racial conflict that we are beset by in the country is to be found in the margins where black and white and brown and yellow and all of that yeah. are are interacting with each other. And although we sit here in the year 2021 
it might be hard to envision. And America, 50 or 75 years down the line, need not have the same insular racial division that that we see today. It seems to be malleable. It's it's endogenous. It's a part of what we get to decide about rather than. So so I'm objecting in a way to the presupposition of a of an insular and distinctively non-european identity to be imposed upon oh, see, black I americans actually, i actually agree with that glenn the oh. uh, there is there is uh, a, a fellow i know in britain uh, eric kaufman uh, who has made an argument very much like yours that the solution to the race question is intermarriage and the disappearance of different racial groups now, the reason I don't agree with him, actually, because for me, what's the key assimilation is <laughs> so what I would hope to see, and it's already happening more than we admit, is that blacks become assimilated more than now to an individualist culture. And once that happens, race ceases to be significant, doesn't indicate anything significant, and it fades from consciousness. And I think of my several black friends and associates, you're one of them who um, are temperamentally just like me. They're inner-driven individuals who have goals for their lives, and they pursue them. Uh, and their idea right and wrong is just like mine. No, we get along, and we, we cease to see ourselves as racially different uh, because race no longer signifies anything. I think much of what we traditionally call racism, there was, of course, racism aimed at race per se. I'm quite sure that was true for much of American history. But since the civil rights era, whites have given up racism in that sense. What they're much more concerned about is the differences of culture between the bulk of the black group and whites. Uh, They want to see an individualist temperament. Uh, So that's why when I I know myself, when I encounter a black person uh, who is assertive and who asserts his own point of view, even if we disagree, I am at ease with that person because he's just like me. He's pursuing a way of life that he has chosen. And that makes him an individual. It's just like me. The thing I'm look, the persons I'm much more weary about are people who, are, who don't show that temperament, who are more passive, who are acquiescent in outside pressures, who I don't know what they want. I don't know what they stand for. I'm more likely to be distrustful of them. What's racial about that, Larry? What's that? I said, in what way does that distinction that you're drawing between individualist yeah. who don't look outside, but who are internally motivated to live a good life. And I'm not sure what the, what's the opposite of individualism. It's, it's, it's some kind of external authority that one is deferential to, and one doesn't take initiative within one's own life. Uh, but what, what's, racial, what's racial about that is what I'm asking. Isn't, no, there's nothing per se racial. Culture is much more important than race. That's the whole point of this whole project is to try to make that clear, that it's the cultural differences that actually – are divisive. That's what we care much more about. Uh, what's characteristic of the non-individualist groups, and that is not only blacks, but Hispanics, Asians too, Native Americans. In all of these cases, there's, an, there's a passivity at the core of the psychology. People are waiting to be told what to do by their environment rather than by their personal goals. And it's that that, that arouses distrust in the mainstream, but that isn't the way we think life's about. So we're looking for blacks and Hispanics and Native Americans who share our temperament. Whether they share our opinions is much less important. I don't, I don't have a problem with people who disagree with me about things, who have a different goal from mine. 
I mean, the current anti-racist activists are people that I deeply disagree with, but their temperament is just like mine. Temperamentally, they are actually an example to their people. They are showing black America how they too should live. And, and, and that, now that's hard. Taking on the burdens of freedom is very demanding. But so, I mean, but we have these groups, right? You, you, are, you have this European rubric. I don't know where the, uh, the poor whites that J.D. Vance writes about in his Hillbilly Elegy fit within the framework of this, of this uh, European uh, rubric. I, I, I don't imagine, though, that the uh, behavior patterns and outlooks that I give this as an example, Vance describes their... Um, or that Robert Putnam, I'm, I'm sure you know, yeah. them, you know, or that Charles Murray and coming apart is pointing his finger at. Uh, these are Europeans that they're talking about, are they not? And, and yet they are exhibiting uh, exactly the the uh, non-individualist uh, outlook that that you decry. Well, actually, uh, I, I would differ with that. Vance is to me is describing a subculture uh, that uh, comes up in earlier research. It's actually not very important compared to the bulk of the whites that came to America in the early immigrant immigration. They Are you talking about like the Scotch-Irish stuff? Yeah, the Scotch-Irish, also the Southern whites who founded the slavery plantations in the South, the Puritans who went to New England, the Quakers who went to Pennsylvania. These are all subgroups within among the English cheaply. And, and they were all individualists in my terms. They had differences among themselves. But they, they were they differed far more radically with the Native Americans as well as with slavery. Uh, and the other important groups to remember are that the immigrants that came from Europe in the later 19th century, early 20th century, chiefly from Eastern and Southern Europe. Those people assimilated much more readily than the non-Western groups, I think, because they were coming from Europe. So they already had a fair amount of that individual's temperament coming in. And we, we therefore look back on that. We think immigration poses no problem, but it does today because now the immigrants are coming from the non-Western world, uh, especially from Latin America and Asia. Those countries are not like the West. They're not Western. And the people who come from there, and I've seen this in my own students, have serious difficulties adjusting to an individualist society. So the black struggle is not really different from their struggle. Blacks have been here longer. That's true. But much of that time, they were not actually forced to assimilate. And it's only when they came north that we start to see a struggle with individualist America. And, and many have made that transition. I mean, I greatly admire blacks who become individuals. That is really hard. That taking on the burden's freedom is difficult. It involves responsibilities, especially inner responsibilities, that you don't have in the non-Western world. Is- now, how would how would you react to this, Larry? So you have emancipation. That's eighteen sixty three. The end of the war, eighteen sixty five. Reconstruction, yeah, which uh, collapses in the haze, Tilden compromise, and so forth. The rise of Jim Crow and whatnot. Now here you have an emancipated population of formerly enslaved persons. Uh, my sense of the matter is that that's that seventy five years after eighteen sixty five uh, to nineteen forty to the to the threshold of the Second World War witnesses a remarkable uh, development in the formerly enslaved population. I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but literacy rates rising dramatically in this yes. population after emancipation to the turn of the 20s. Uh, institutions being formed, the Booker T. Washington kind of uh, uh, assertive, 
responsibility taking self-development uh, that springs forth uh, and, and you know, schools, learning, acquiring property, starting businesses. They do this under segregation of necessity because they are foreclosed from uh, being able to access mainstream institutions on anything like an equal basis. This is the population closest to the origin condition of African-Americans. And it is, it seems to me, very substantially individualist in the way in which it seizes the burden of freedom. This population doesn't languish. Indeed, this population, through its institutions like the church, are able to mount a, a political movement for civil rights and so on. It's, yeah. it, and it seems to me, again, I'm asking you to react to this. It's only later in the 20th century and now into the 21st century that the evidence that you can offer for a failure to bear the burdens of freedom on the part of African-Americans is most graphic and, and uh, compelling. I, I would have thought that that population of freedmen starting in 1865 and going ahead for three quarters of a century did indeed seize the burdens of freedom. Otherwise, well, they they'd be yeah. So, I, I, so how? So then, how does it get to be? Because they're they're the elite. They're not they're not typical of the group as a whole. The, the, the most blacks, even in that era, are still living in the South under Jim Crow. They don't really deal with freedom. The groups you're describing, and I absolutely admire them. What they did was extraordinary. They basically took on board individuals and made it their own. And they did it in ways that were distinctive to them. One of the things that uh, is we haven't mentioned, but to me is really crucial, is that even under slavery, black arts achievements, the artistic and cultural achievements of blacks, begin to have a decisive influence on the rest of America. And, and that occurs right up to the present. The, the cultural influence of blacks in the sense, especially the arts, music, other things that they contribute to culture are absolutely distinctive. They're very, very different from the culture of the European population. If we want to see what America would be like without them, you look at Canada or Australia. You see a country with uh, great virtues, but they're not culturally very important. Whereas because of the black impact, American culture is much, much richer, has a whole lot. And that temperament that generates that culture, I think, reflects the non-Western world. Uh, but the point is the leadership that you're referring to is taking on board the freedom. They absolutely, but unfortunately, it isn't true for the group as a whole. And it's when the group as a whole comes north that you don't really see uh, a full assimilation of individualism. It's when they come to the northern cities that you start to see the collapse. And also because of civil rights, the, um, the whole society becomes more tolerant of aberrant behavior like female-headedness, crime, and so on. Those things are, are occurring or increasing also among whites, but not nearly so much because the tradition of self-command is so much stronger. Uh, so blacks fall apart after civil rights rather than before. This is what's wrong about the standard academic account, which is that oppression is the reason for black social problems. Yeah, we agree about that. It's, it's really freedom that's the problem. So actually, the way, one way to characterize what has to happen now is that the uh, less assimilated part of black America should start to do what their leaders told them to do 100 years ago. We're, we're in substantial agreement, like Larry, but, but the, what I'm chafing at is, is this, uh, it almost feels essentialist to me, uh, 
uh, attribution of the cultural patterns that you are putting your finger on on uh, European versus non-European uh, points of origin. I, it, the, the, the transformation that you just got through describing amongst African-Americans uh, uh is is something that's happening here, and it seems to me to be contingent upon. Uh, you say oppression is not the er text from which we will derive all conclusion. I agree, I agree, but oppression is not irrelevant. It's certainly not historical oppression to yeah. uh, some of the patterns that we've that we've observed. And I also want to argue that the larger uh, uh, intellectual framework, I mean, the excuse making for African-American failure and deficiency coming from liberal elites. I'm talking about white elites yeah. uh, or, or the uh, relative neglect of uh, well-proven uh, patterns of value and attitude about family, about sexuality, uh, yeah. about uh, and so on, uh, which, again, I see is driven largely by forces outside of European forces, I might underscore, outside of the African-American community and the debilitating effects of welfare dependency. This is policy. This is politics. This is a Democrat and Republican party fighting it out about how to shape the larger uh, uh, social compact, but uh, creating circumstances where the incentives for people to live uh, lives of individualism and responsibility are undercut by law. law. The African-Americans are not making the law in the country, the law is made by the larger uh, political forces that are at work. Uh, so, I agree with that. I, I, I would agree with the fact. The glorification that, of rap music. I mean, I could go on in this vein. Rap yeah. music looks like it's an African-American thing. But in fact, most of those DVDs and uh, streaming services are being sold to white teenagers who are going through their own rites of passage in life, generating a demand for a cultural product which when it does redound back into the African-American community reinforces the worst tendencies of irresponsibility, of, of a, a living a, a, a life of, uh, that's undignified, that's sexual licentiousness and so forth and so on. I would not attribute those things solely or even mainly to the non-European origins of the African-American population made right here in America and made mostly by European-Americans, I would say. I think that's right. I, I agree with that, but, but it never took as deeply among the European population. They didn't, in fact, abandon this structure in the way that they right. And And that is true. You're right what you're saying. But the elites, in fact, have become more conservative culturally in the last couple of decades. They are the ones who are the most firmly married, the most conformist to traditional values and so on. And, and they, therefore, have escaped the, the damage that occurred among blacks, it isn't only. I, I totally agree that. Excuse me. So the uh, a problem now is to restore the elements of structure which black society was acquiring in the early twentieth century, and 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 get them back on the road towards assimilation, which was you're quite right to say was occurring quite successfully in the early twentieth century, and that that development was occurring under Jim Crow. And that's because the elements that were assimilating were mostly in the north. They were outside Jim Crow. It was Jim Crow that was maintaining its grip on the bulk of the black population, which is living a very different life. And it's when they come north that problem really hits. Uh, Larry, Larry, I totally agree. Larry, let me ask you this. I think one of the um, the, uh, some support for the burdens of freedom comes also because 
um, you identify other groups throughout the world as being subject to the non-European uh, culture that affects them when they come to America. Can you uh, uh, elucidate that a little bit more? Uh, yeah. If you look, for example, uh, Asians are, are often seen as the most successful of recent immigrants because they come here and they get to go through school, usually with great success and so on and so on. But after they get through uh, college, actually when they get into college, they start to face pressures to be more individual because we expect people to think for themselves and put their own arguments together. And they have a much harder time with that. My Asia students struggle with individualism. They really have a, a hard time making their own ideas and coming up with their own plans. Uh, and in fact, they come and talk to me and they say things, uh, I hope I'm becoming more individualist from semester to semester. They know they have to do that. And they're facing problems when they don't. And this is a group that is very well functioning conventional change. Excuse me, Larry, let me just ask, do you mean making their own plans over and against what their parents would have them do? Yes. Uh, oftentimes, that's what they have to see. The, a, a, basic, a basic temperament in the West is that you expect that children will leave home and they will yeah. go off and uh, make their own lives. Okay? But that isn't typical of the non-West. In most of the non-West, people really never leave home. They stay where they, were, where they grew up. And they remain part of an extended family. They acquire uh, authority as they age and become elders. And they're then so there's, there's something of a people. paradox with the Asians, no? I mean, on the one hand, the filial piety that leads them to not want to bring home an A- minus to the parent who yeah. think that that's failure causes them to get into Harvard. On the other hand, they don't have the autonomy and the sense of uh, yeah. making their own world that allows them to make the best that they could possibly make out of being at Harvard. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, they often don't get into Harvard. I mean, a reason I support Harvard's approach to immigration, which is to say that Yes, we look for people from Asian backgrounds, but we also want to see people with uh, an element of individualism. And that, that is harder to find among the Asians. And also, the other reason to doubt that the black story is completely distinctive is you compare them to Hispanics. The Hispanic story is remarkable. Uh, when they come from Latin America and Mexico, Central America, to, to the U.S., they're coming with less previous assimilation than really any other group. And they have a really hard time dealing with freedom. Uh, in fact, uh, many of my Hispanic students, and I don't see very many, uh, they don't do much worse in school. But when they come here, their problem isn't that they lack intelligence. On the contrary, they definitely want to get ahead and all that. But they are absolutely preoccupied with problems in the family. They have such a hard time dealing with families that are falling apart. Uh, they can't, uh, they don't have the, the, the structure in their lives that allows them to set their own direction. The Asians have more structure, at least up through school. The, the Hispanics often lack even that. And, and so they have very many of the same social problems that blacks have. Uh, the unwed pregnancy rate is over half for Hispanics. And that's an average over a number of subgroups that have uh, rates as high as 65% for some of them. So it's, and again, and they're never subject to slavery. So I think the really important influence here is, that, is the, the background in the non-Western world. It's, we have to get over the idea that the minorities and the immigrants are somehow out of step. It's really European America that's out of step. If you look at the world as a whole, the temperament of the West, where people pursue their own goals and internalize their moral structure, that is actually unique to, to Europe. It's not found anywhere else in the world. And it never has been. 
And even though this culture has came, come to dominate the world because Western countries became rich and powerful, although that's true, they're still vastly outnumbered by the non-West. So one way to see what's going on in the Black story and also the immigration story is a large-scale struggle between the West and the non-West. In fact, uh, in, in this project, we've encountered some books by uh, anthropologists like Joe Henrik, for example, who wrote a book called The Weirdest People in the World. The weirdest people are the Westerners. They are crazy. They are actually doing a life or living a life that is not found anywhere else. So in a sense, the problem with Black America and Hispanic America, when they come to America, they're, they're coming really to the only part of the world which has a dominant individualist culture. If they were anywhere else, they wouldn't have faced the same problems. Now, they wouldn't be well-governed. They wouldn't be as rich. They would miss the characteristic benefits of living in the West. But the adjustment that they face is unique in coming into an individualist culture. Uh, and that is what uh, we need to take seriously. Uh, now, but the, the, the solution, you've already hit on it, is that there'd be assimilation at a cultural level. But then we don't have to worry about racial assimilation in the sense of racial uh, coming together. Because that race doesn't matter after culture is taken out of the picture. It really ceases to matter. Uh, and uh, I think we should see that as hopeful. The long-term prospect here is actually quite positive. Uh, and uh, I, I therefore disagree with the current anti-racism movement because they're basically saying the whole problem is white racism. No, it really isn't. Racism in the old sense is pretty well dead. Uh, what whites, however, don't want to accept is that blacks, as they now live, are the same as they are. No, they're not. Sameness is not plausible. But it can become plausible if people adjust to an individualist culture. Uh, and that's what I think I see the black story overall, much as you do, is one of assimilation to an American culture in which, to which they contributed enormous amounts. But that process was interrupted by the social breakdown of the 60s and 70s. And now we have to reverse that and, and get blacks as, and Hispanics on the road to becoming individualists. And then, then they are bearing the burdens of freedom, which are not easy. I mean, one of the uh, things that I definitely came away from writing this book is admiration for the struggles faced by the non-Western groups, because this is really hard. They've been taught to live in a certain way, and now suddenly they can live in a very different way. And whereas European Americans don't have to do that, they came here with a certain temperament. They've never been forced to change it, and they're too successful to face outside pressure to change it. And uh, now uh, they are getting beaten up a bit by the anti-racism movement. But in fact, uh, the way forward is, in fact, to once again, assimilate the burdens of freedom to go forward. Uh, in the long term, we, we won't really see this, I don't think, as a racial issue. We'll see it as a cultural Again, I underscore that the non-Western immigrants who are getting off the airplane or off the boat, as it were, are one thing. And the African-American are effectively an indigenous American population uh, going back a, a century and a half or more. And uh, that, that feels to me like a different thing. Uh, well, non-Western. How how are African Americans non-Western? It's a serious question. How are they non-Western? It's it's in their way of life. How are we non-Western? Yeah, um, I have to say they're non-Western in their way of life. I don't. It isn't really important where they came from. It's rather how they've lived in this country for most of the time they've been here. Uh, and another way to see this is that Northern blacks who were not under slavery 
or who escapes slavery. I'm thinking someone like Frederick Douglass, for example. Douglass is, to me, a paragon for the uh, supremely individualist in person. I don't think of him really as black. I think of him as a pioneer of a way of life that uh, is hopefully taking root in that group and then becoming dominant, as it is slowly becoming dominant. So uh, the way forward, again, is to keep going down that road. Glenn, let me ask you a question. How would you, to what would you ascribe the fact that in sub-Saharan Africa, there are weak states, weak institutions, and uh, they're definitely a different cultural way of, of, um, of getting along that correspond to what I think Larry is, uh, is saying, uh, is describing. Uh, there's no enlightenment. There was no Magna Carta. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there was no uh, development of a tradition of reflection about governance and uh, the, about the role of the state that gave rise to a rule of law uh, and, and to the institutions and traditions that have allowed uh, uh, relatively low, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, degrees of uh, corruption and uh, uh, have impeded the development of, of uh, uh, institutional practice and expectation of, uh, of uh, good governance. I mean, I, I, my, my answer to you is I don't know, but if I'm forced to speculate outside of my field of expertise, those are the kind of things that I would, that I would point to. And I would say that good governance uh, accountable uh, the political institutions, uh, peaceful transference of power, uh, uh, the the embrace of, of democratic norms, uh, the uh, the uh, instantiation of meritocratic assessment for office and the diminution of uh, nepotism and whatnot. These accomplishments, which I do associate with Western political organization. Uh, have their roots going back into uh, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and uh, that kind of development didn't happen in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, Am I wrong? Know, Does that make sense? Uh, actually, the, I, I make an argument in the second chapter of my book that actually that, that difference, which you refer to, goes way back, much further, that the, your, the individualist temperament of Europe is visible already at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. And that ever afterwards, individualism is the dominant culture of Europe. Now, and then out of that comes the commitment to the rule of law, to accountable government, and so on and so on. And in the remarkable case, the British case, you find the Europeans getting their act together politically centuries before the Enlightenment. In fact, way, way back. Well, the Magna Carta is indeed centuries before the Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah the Magna Carta is, you could almost call Magna Carta. <laughs> development. I'm sorry, the Magna Carta what? I didn't hear you. Magna Carta could also be seen as almost a late development. In a late development. Because the the willingness to rule by, by law and to accept accountability is found even under King Alfred at the foundation of the kingdom in the ninth century. You'll already find that. And the British go on, they have a gift politically, it's quite extraordinary, and they develop the features that you mentioned. But the Europeans aren't far behind. They also show rule of law, government by, by accountability, and so on and so on. And meanwhile, it doesn't appear at all outside the Western world. 
except there's only one country that can claim to be as well-governed on a long-term basis that is not European and not individualist. You can probably think which country that is. I'm sorry, say it again. What I say that there is only one country outside the Western world that develops good government of the kind you describe. It is not European and not individualist. And and that's that is yeah, that's Japan is a special case. Japan, oh, Japan, Japan. Yeah, the Japanese have a political gift for Asia. It's kind of like the British gift in Europe. They're exceptionally gifted politically, and they form a legitimate regime, governed uh, honestly, if not legally, way way back. Okay, so we're in agreement about the importance of the institutions to accounting for the distinction between the quality of governance and uh, the yes. Northern Hemisphere. But you're attributing that difference to these uh, root cultural yes. uh, and, and uh, patterns reason, that predate the advent of the Magna Carta or anything yes, else. Yes, it goes way back. The Europeans are already individualists. The reason why individualism leads to good government is because of the moralism of the culture. The moralism of the West means that people have principled ideas about right and wrong that go right back to the Ten Commandments. Okay, and no other culture has this. What we see in the Bible with the Ten Commandments is not typical. That isn't normal. That actually is the origin of Western culture, according to Max Weber. It's the, the, the legalism of the West is really found in the notion that morals are principles that are universally valid. And they're not based on social context. That isn't found outside the West. Uh, and, and that's why the West is able to achieve a civic culture and, and thereby have strong institutions. Even okay, well, at the same time, yeah. it's a free culture. I, I'd say, I mean, I'm not trying to uh, truncate the conversation here, but this has been 45 minutes well spent because I, I understand your argument in a deeper way than uh, than I otherwise would have done from the from this exchange, uh, even though I've been spending time with the book, but I haven't fully appreciated it. Yeah, well, you're you're addressing, however, the, the most important issue right now certainly is uh, the question of assimilation of blacks and how they can fit into America and, or also contribute enormously to it. I mean, I emphasize the black contribution to American culture. It is very distinguished. Yeah, without it, we wouldn't be what we are as a country. But I'm pessimistic about this, and I wonder how you react. I mean, we had the election of Barack Hussein Obama to the highest office in the land, an extraordinary event, I guess one would have to say. Uh, And yet race relations have gotten worse, not better. And uh, the opportunity that the ascendancy of an African-descended person to this uh, uh, powerful, symbolic, and substantively powerful office, the implications of that were – were at least potentially to uh, encourage the kind of assimilation that uh, you are calling for. And yet, uh, not only the ex post facto result, which is that we're moving further apart, but the uh, Obama's conduct of his of his uh, portfolio uh, while in office, it seemed to me, uh, missed a great opportunity to to move us in the right direction. Well, I actually would, I would agree with that. Obama is an exemplary figure, in my view. He represents an absolutely assimilated, absolutely comp, very gifted person. In fact, his the nearest equivalent to Obama is really Jack Kennedy, uh, who was similarly gifted, uh, had enormous potential, of course, wasn't able to realize it. Uh, Obama, I think, faced not 
he didn't, of course, he wasn't assassinated, but he faced the polarization of the parties and the determination of the, of the conservatives and the Republicans to frustrate his every move. I mean, I totally agree with you. That was a, a counterproductive development, and I wish it had never happened. But I don't think that the problems of Obama are the central problems for blacks. It's really the lower-income population where the disorders are the most serious and where the current movement has really not addressed that. The current anti-racism movement is remarkably lacking in any kind of agenda for what to do about those disorders at the bottom. And I spent much of my career as a policy expert developing programs that will, in fact, improve things at the bottom. And what those programs amount to, really, is a return to an individualist culture uh, and, and where we need to basically say to young black kids and as well as white kids, you need to assimilate rules for good behavior in the cradle, and you should have those from your family. And if you don't get them there, you should get them in school. And that's what the, the highest performing charter schools really do. They assimilate rules of good behavior. And then after that, then you are able to go forth after school and live your own life and choose your own goals. So the individual's culture is a combination of inner order and uh, personal choices without direction. That's what, in fact, that's the American way of life. So freedom isn't free. Freedom requires internalization of rules of good behavior in the cradle. And then after that, you go on towards your own life. Uh, and uh, that is, in fact, what we should be doing. And that, unfortunately, the, the racism movement, although constructed in some ways, has distracted attention from that. It may lead only to uh, greater pressure for affirmative action and, and the appointment of blacks to visible positions atop the various hierarchies. Those people will no doubt be very capable, but they are quite unlike the people at the bottom. In a sense, they're like the leaders that you pointed to in the uh, – uh, in the era of the early 20th century that led the emergence of black culture. Uh, they're like that today, and but that is not a solution to the bulk of the group, which still has to, has to get it together in order to be able to progress. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Any further comments? Uh, Jason, do you have anything to add? I can't hear you. You're muted, Jason. You're, uh, you're muted, uh, Jason. Uh, no. no, this has been this has been a really good conversation, and uh, Glenn, uh, thank you for your comments, and uh, and uh, I advise anybody to listen to your show, the Glenn Show, and uh, I got a lot out of it. I always I always do. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Jason. Larry thank is my you, hero, Glenn. by the way. Lawrence Mead is my hero. Uh, I still remember Beyond Entitlement, Larry. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're you're just fearless and you're so creative and uh, bold, and um, I'm happy to know you, man. Yeah. Well, thank you, Glenn. The feeling is mutual uh, <laughs> in my life as well. And we've actually had some professional connections as well as the, on the uh, on the uh, anti incarceration committee, for example. And yeah, uh, we've uh, our paths have crossed, and I think that was inevitable. And it's going to happen again. So thanks very much. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Very good. Look forward to it. Take care. Nice meeting you, Jason. Michelle. Right. Nice to meet you. Okay.